Every life is a story. Some are bestsellers. I'm Chuck. I'm Karen. And this is Spy Stories. Tell me who we are going to learn about today, Karen. Today, we're going to learn about Timothy Webster. He was a spy, and this is his story. Timothy, who I will refer to sometimes as Tim, was born in England in 1822. He was the fourth of 11 children born to Timothy Sr. and Francis Webster. The family immigrated to Princeton, New Jersey when Timothy was eight. Tim got married at 19 to Charlotte Sprowls, who was four years his senior. A year later, she had the first of their four children, two who sadly died in infancy. Webster considered himself to be a Jacksonian Democrat. He was very passionate about the rights of the common man. But later, he became just as passionate about removing himself from Jacksonian nativist beliefs. Although Timothy first trained as a machinist, he had a hard time maintaining employment because of the depression that occurred due to the Panic of 1837. So he decided to switch careers and he moved the family to a more metropolitan area. And there's not much more that can be metropolitan than New York City. So he moved his family there in the 1840s and he joined the city's new police force. New York City established their first professional police force in 1845, and the force was initially shaped by America's new ideas of limited government, distrust over a standing army, and a desire to keep civil institutions close to the people of the community. But the small force was simply unable to keep up with the booming growth of the city, and in 1845, the Municipal Police Act was signed into law, reshaping the force. Okay, Chuck, you are our resident historian, so why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, up until then, as you said, they operated under what was called the Night Watch system. And this was a loosely organized group of men or groups of men authorized by the state to deter crime, but there was no real formal structure to it. Now, during the 1820s, that's when you saw the massive Irish immigration into the U.S. So, Newark's population just boomed. And with that came a rise in crime. So, they realized that they had to do something. And this rise in crime was blamed on the Irish, of course, because at that time, you know, that that's when they had signs, Irish need not apply and everything else. But by 1845, they decided this is no longer working. We have to create a force. And they modeled it on London's police force. And, it, and it's kind of ironic at that time people blame the Irish. But if you think about how over the years the New York police have been portrayed, it's almost always an Irish person. Right, right. But in the beginning, it was not. Right. They kind of thought of the police if they had a police force in place. People in their heads did think of that as like a standing army. Right. So they kind of wanted a people's police force, and that was the night watchman. I see. Well, you are Irish, are you not? I am. So, I mean, to be fair, they're not known for their extremely calm demeanors, right? <laughs> we are 
a peace-loving, law-abiding people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, you're never you're never prone to any type of um, of uh, impulsivity or anything like that, right? No, and I I don't want to offend people, but I I always joke because my family is deeply, deeply Irish and. And I always say, you know, the stereotype of the fighting, drinking Irishman. And tragic. And tragic. <laughs> A little bit tragic. Um, the, the reason for that is because, well, it's true. <laughs> I've lived that my whole <laughs> <Yeah>. life. So. <laughs> well, at first, Timothy Webster wasn't given very challenging work. He often referred to himself as a glorified dog catcher. But he had his family to feed, and he also took care of a lot of his younger siblings. So he had to do something, so he did that. In 1854, though, Tim Webster was assigned to work the Crystal Palace Exhibition, and this later became known as America's First World Fair. This is really cool. It is. The exhibition went from July to November of 1854. And the U.S. had not seen anything like it. The main building or palace was made up of 15,000 panes of glass. Okay, wait. So 15,000 panes of glass and an influx of Irishmen does not seem like a good combination. What could go wrong? <laughs> right. What could go wrong? Well, inside were 4,500 exhibits of industrial machines, consumer goods from all over the world, clocks, boats, all kinds of exciting new inventions. So it was it was pretty, it, again, it was like nothing the world had seen before. Well, pretty much anyone who was anyone was there. And a lot of historians speculate that it was during this event that Timothy met an Alan Pinkerton. And supposedly Pinkerton offered him a job at this time, but Webster turned it down. I mean, all he ever knew was where he was at. So the idea of the Pinkerton Detective Agency or what Pinkerton's work was must have seemed very just unrealistic to him at the time. Right. Well, because of the influx of Irish immigrants, nativist ideology was really starting to run rampant in the country. And anyone who was foreign born was viewed with suspicion. English-born Webster was called up several times to testify to his loyalty to the country, but he refused because he believed that his actions spoke for themselves. Tensions kept building until the Astor Place riot broke out. Now, the Astor Place riot really threw me when I started looking into this. And it's really the whole history of Shakespeare in American life, Karen. It is. It is. And I mean, it was really the catalyst for where a lot of the just blatantly racist ideology kind of came in. Yeah. Well, in, eight, in 1849, you had an American actor. He was Edwin Forrest, and he was at the height of his popularity here in America. And he was known for this ruggedly masculine good looks and very forceful acting style. Kind of the stereotypical American frontier kind of what yeah and then you had the much more restrained british actor william mccready who was probably kind of fussy because that's you know he's british and these guys had uh, just a ton of contempt for each other it was over shakespeare and their approach to shakespeare's <laughs> roles but i'm just like imagining them using shakespearean insults at each other yeah like 
I mean, this was one of the craziest things. Now, Forrest, was, he was like a hero to the working man in the lower classes. And McCready was praised by wealthy Americans. and I bet he preferred McCready. McCready, McCready. not McCready. Well, yeah. <laughs> anyway, on May 10, Forrest supporters, they descend by the thousands on McCready's planned performance, although they're not buying tickets. They come down to the Astor Palace Opera House with guns, rifles, sticks, stones, everything else. Damn, they were taking Macbeth really seriously, weren't they? Oh, yeah. You you know, you you think the critics were hard on Macbeth. These people, they (laughs) had guns. So, I mean, they had to call in the state militia. Right. It was a really serious deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And inside the theater, McCready, he was kind of struggling to get through the performance and then fled never to appear in American theater again. Dang. (laughs) So that kind of ended that antagonism. Right. But at the end of the day, 22 people were dead. Wow. And that was considered a great victory for the Tammany Hall Democrats somehow. They thought they were refighting, in a way, the Revolutionary War there. And didn't it bring up the whole know-nothing party that sort of gained power after that? It spiraled. That kind of nativism and nationalism spiraled into and, yeah, ended up developing into the know-nothing party that we've covered in, I guess, in Context and Clarity, the other podcast. Which is our other podcast. Yeah, that's it's very, very interesting. But, I mean, this whole Astor Place right? you go to a, you know, you you get all dressed up and, you know, for me, you know what that is, but... Um, it's not wearing gym shoes <laughs> and you go down and all of a sudden the state militia is there to break up over who does Shakespeare better. Those people it's, took it seriously. Like, yeah. It brings it into a real realistic. I mean, that was the first like 3d theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. There was no CGI in this. Right. It's the real deal. Well, he, if I was a cop during that time period, I would so want to get up on the stage and just yell at the top of my lungs, out, out, damn spot, with everybody, you know, fighting, because never mind. Yeah, that one. I think it was funnier in my head than it actually ended up being. That's okay. okay. You can try him out on the show and fail miserably. Nobody <laughs> has a problem with that. With danger to his family at an all-time high and being completely fed up with the disgusting and dangerous rhetoric all around him, Webster decided to take Pinkerton up on his offer, and he took a job with Pinkerton's recently founded Northwestern Police Agency, which was based in Chicago. So Webster moved his family to Onarga, Illinois, 90 miles south of Chicago. I guess he kind of learned his lesson about metropolitan areas yeah, he wanted to go to the suburbs then right um, pinkerton was obviously founded by alan pinkerton he was actually a scottish detective and spy and he met a chicago attorney edward rucker in a local masonic hall and him and the other illuminati were all there <laughs> and they formed the northwestern police agency and that was later the pinkerton agency And they were kind of interesting because they did everything from from private security to military contracting. And they also hired women and minorities, which was something very unusual at that time. Sadly, we don't have a lot of the Pinkerton Agency records. And I really wish we did because you know that they had to be really, really interesting. 
but we don't have them because of the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. But we do have a few records of some of Webster's work. One of the biggest cases that he worked was taking down the notorious forger Julius Imbert. This guy was a major forger and swindler. He was born in the French Indies. He'd had tons of aliases, and he was really, really a a big deal. Right. Well, Tim tracked his actions from Key West to Charleston to North Carolina, then Baltimore, then New York, and finally Chicago. He was brought in while attempting to swindle a company called R.K. Swift Brothers and Johnson. It was Webster and a fellow agent named George Bangs. Bang, 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 bang. Right? That's a good name if you're like a detective, yeah? Okay, keep going, please. (laughs) Well, they finally got him. While the agents followed the con man's trail, they had to get creative, and sometimes they had to get really daring. At one point, Imbert leapt off of a moving train, and Webster did the same thing, keeping the heat on him until the swindler, just simply tired of trying to evade him, finally turned himself in. Oh, he'd had enough. I mean, that means you're doing your job well when you track someone so much that they're just like, I'm so tired of running. I'm just going to turn myself in. I give. I give. I'm just tired. I have a feeling you're going to do that to me. You're going to be like, I'm just tired, Karen. You're just... I quit. (laughs) Although the Embert case was sometimes exciting, most of Timothy's work was pretty mundane. His usual task was to pose as a train passenger to catch theft by train conductors. But even simple assignments like this kept him away from his family for up to 10 day stretches. Webster's next, more notorious job was to catch a Chicago resurrectionist. A resurrectionist was the correct term for what we call grave robbing. Which is kind of funny. (laughs) It is. Grave robbing was not always a nefarious act and was often a necessity for the medical community to do research. William Burke and William Hare of England ruined that for everyone. (laughs) Because they decided to kill in order to supply fresh corpses. It's not funny, but I mean, (laughs) like... It's not. It's not. No. Now, this led to the Anatomy Act of 1832. What I I can't get is they ruined it for everyone. I mean, it it was okay to rob graves until then. (laughs) They're just entrepreneurs, But they started killing people and putting them in graves and robbing the graves. Supply and demand. They're just yeah. keeping up with the times. They were entrepreneurs. They, That's what they were. Well, they saw a need. I mean, it's capitalism. <laughs> there you go. In 1857, Potter's Field in Chicago was inundated with grave robberies. After some midnight stakeouts, Webster and his team caught the perpetrators. Interestingly, the perpetrator was actually the coroner. It always is. Scooby-Doo could have figured that out. <laughs> Well, after the case was completed, the Websters had their next child, Eva, and Eva unfortunately passed away at a very young age. Timothy was heartsick over this, and he was truly racked with guilt that he had been gone during most of her young life. The mission that took this important time from him was actually a precursor to his spy work. Tim Webster's next job involved the growing regional battle ripping apart the country, And weirdly, he ended up in Davenport, Iowa, to curb attempts to burn down the Rock Island Bridge. What was the important thing about this bridge, Chuck? This bridge connected Rock Island, Illinois, with Davenport, Iowa. 
and it was the first rail bridge to cross the Mississippi. Now, although the bridge inspired mobility and growth, those who depended on steamboat transport feared railroad expansion. Right, and fear always leads to negative action. The drama concerning the bridge culminated in a quote-unquote accident just 15 days prior to the bridge completion. The steamboat, the Effie Afton, crashed into one of the bridge piers. The crew and the boat's 200 passengers escaped without harm, which is kind of interesting. Um, Yeah, amazing. But all all the cargo, except some cattle, were destroyed along with a good portion of the bridge. The bridge destruction inspired great celebration. The steamboat company sued Rock Island Bridge Company. The case went to trial, but it resulted in a hung jury. Since the bridge could not be brought down legally, some groups turned to more criminal methods. After two unsuccessful attempts to burn the bridge, Timothy Webster was dispatched to protect the bridge and uncover any remaining conspiracies to destroy it. In 1859, Webster headed up a team that discovered combustible material around the bridge and who eventually discovered all those plotting to destroy it. Following the success of this job, Webster moved to Davenport part-time and he was pretty integrated into the community. The close of the 1850s was an incredibly tumultuous time because the issue of slavery was tearing the Union apart. The argument reached new proportions, and Chuck, you researched this, right? The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, and that was passed by Congress on May 30th, 1854. It allowed people in the territories of Kansas and Nebraska to vote on whether to allow slavery within their borders. Now, after it was passed, pro-slavery and anti-slavery supporters came in to settle in Kansas to impact the outcome of that election. Pro-slavery settlers won the election but were charged with fraud. The results were not accepted by the anti-slavery settlers. The anti-slavery settlers held another election. But the pro-slavery settlers refused to vote. This resulted in the establishment of two opposing legislatures within the Kansas Territory. Now, of course, violence soon erupted. Right. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a good idea. No, and you had the anti-slavery forces led by John Brown of Harper's Ferry fame. And these battles, these border wars were so frequent and so bloody that the territory earned the name Bleeding Kansas. And that was actually Horace Greeley who termed that phrase when he was writing. And just as the violence increased. Eventually, President Franklin Pierce, in support of the pro-slavery settlers, sent in federal troops to stop this violence and disperse the anti-slavery legislature. Another election was called, and once again, pro-slavery supporters won. Once again, they were charged with election fraud. Congress did not recognize the Constitution adopted by the pro-slavery settlers, And Kansas was not allowed to become a state. Now, eventually, however, anti-slavery settlers outnumbered the pro-slavery settlers and a new constitution was drawn up. And on January 29th, 1861, just before the start of the Civil War, 
Kansas was admitted to the Union as a free state. So it was a very bloody, dramatic, chaotic time. Actually, it was really the beginning of the Civil War. Right. Well, Pinkerton was contacted to supply agents to help the kind of curb the secessionist threats that were just really rampant to destroy bridges and railroad tracks that connected New York and Maryland. He chose several operatives, including Timothy Webster and a female agent by the name of Hattie Lewis. Tim and Hattie were to pose as a married couple, and they were stationed in Perrymansville, Maryland. Pinkerton, who was stationed in the same area under an alias, received intel that he passed on to Webster concerning a secession group called the Knights of the Golden Circle. Well, they were an interesting group. Um, They were a pro-slavery secret society, and they were formed here where I live in Cincinnati in 1858. Ooh, that's weird. And they had some really weird plans. Part of their plan was to annex parts of Mexico to create a slave state. What? <laughs> that didn't really work out. And then they became secessionists. And they really didn't achieve much, but they made a lot of plans. And one <laughs> no. of those plans was to assassinate Lincoln. I mean, it's kind of like these guys all sat around like, you know what we should do next? And nobody really ever did anything. Right. They made a lot of plans. But they did come up with a plan to assassinate Lincoln that people took very seriously. Right. Through that information, Webster discovered that one member of the organization, Cipriano Ferrandini, had a plan to, quote, prevent Lincoln from passing through Baltimore and would see that Lincoln would never go to Washington, unquote. Webster embedded himself into a militia cavalry and he began reporting on the group's plans. His reporting focused on the organization's structure and where they got their support, as well as promises made by the governor of Maryland at that time, Governor Hicks, to supply the group with arms. After talking with a couple of militia members after a game of ten pins, Webster steered conversation towards the route that Lincoln was planning to take into Washington, and the two men stated haughtily that Lincoln would never make it there, and they proceeded to outline their plan. Apparently, these guys were not very good at keeping secrets. Or planning, really. Right. They would get Lincoln to speak in Baltimore, and when he did, he would be killed because there were a thousand men ready for anything. Well, Pinkerton took Webster's reports to President Lincoln, and he strongly recommended that Lincoln allow agents to secretly take him to Washington in the dead of night. After thoughtful consideration, Lincoln refused because he had some commitments in Harrisburg the next day. But he did agree that after Harrisburg, he would allow himself to go into protection. The next evening, Lincoln attended a banquet and he left early, feigning illness. He wore a disguise and was quickly taken to the sleeping car of the waiting train where another agent awaited him. Lincoln arrived safely and the assassination attempt was thwarted. As the country fell into civil war, Pinkerton agents were tasked with the job of espionage under General McClellan. Webster would often gather information from the Confederate camps, and soon he was acting as an official courier for the secessionists. He eventually gained the complete confidence of Confederate officers, and he even delivered personal documents for General John Winder. We talked about this in one of the prior episodes. McClellan took the information that he got from the spies seriously. Right. And he just he would get information from the spies about how many troops they have, and he'd just decide, well, let's not attack. 
And sometimes his spies would be wrong. He never he get conflicting information. And he'd believe the worst case scenario. If right. you remember that he he was a bit of a fatalist. Yes. It, yeah, and and he would kind of just freeze up. So, but it's so it's interesting that he was one of McClellan's spies because McClellan took a he took great stock in what his spies told him. Right. But he always took it to the worst case scenario and right. it froze him up a lot of times. Well, really, the problem was Pinkerton's spies were trained to a certain degree, but a lot of the other spies were chosen in very strange ways. <laughs> like right. we talked about in another yeah. episode, they would use phrenology and they would use just kind of very strange methods to decide if someone was worth being a spy. So they weren't really well trained, um, but the Pinkerton agents were, c- comparatively speaking. And so... Their intel was usually a lot more um, accurate. Yes. So unfortunately, during this time, Tim Webster's health began to decline. He was only 39, but the spy was suffering severe rheumatism. Due to his illness, he was unable to check in as often as he used to, even with his family. Now, this part especially caused Pinkerton to be incredibly concerned because Tim Webster was definitely a family man and he tried to check in with them as much as possible. So Alan Pinkerton sent two agents, Scully and Lewis, to find him. The two detectives finally found Tim Webster holed up, still under his alias, in the Monumental Hotel in Richmond. But as horrible timing would have it, the two detectives were also recognized by a secessionist visiting Tim. Lewis and Scully were arrested and sentenced to death. In desperation, Scully confessed to everything. He implicated his fellow agent, Timothy Webster, in order to save his own life. That sounds like someone named Scully would do something like mm-hmm. that, right? I mean, scurvy. scurvy Scully, yeah. Upon hearing that his trusted courier was a spy... General Winder arrested Timothy Webster himself, seething with the anger of betrayal. Death would be the only way to satiate the burning desire for revenge in the general's heart. Nothing that Alan Pinkerton or Lincoln himself could do could stop the death sentence awaiting Timothy Webster. He was the first Union spy hanged in the Civil War, and it would set a precedent that took the lives of many after him. Even Lincoln tried to intervene. Right. Because they had not been hanging the Confederate spies. Right. And he said, if you want to start this with this guy, we'll start hanging your spies. Right. Timothy had one request. He asked to die by firing squad like a soldier rather than being hanged like a criminal. The valiant request was denied. The final week of Timothy's life also marked his 40th birthday. Tim Webster, whose rheumatism was so bad he was compelled to use crutches and was shivering from the pain in his limbs, spent his last night forcing aching, gnarled fingers to write letters to each member of his beloved family. The next day, the ill man had to be helped up to the scaffold. His hands were tied behind his back, his legs tied together, and the rope was placed around his neck. A prayer was said and a hood covered Webster's head. The trap sprung, but it did not end for Webster. The noose slipped and the brave agent fell to the ground. The trap was reset and Webster stated calmly, I suffer a second death. The second time the noose was tied so tight it was too short. 
Oh, are you going to choke me this time? Mocked Webster, using his last words to shame his enemies. The body of Timothy Webster was finally cut down after hanging for 30 minutes. Some of General Winder's men cut pieces of the rope that killed Webster for souvenirs. Six years later, Pinkerton was finally able to retrieve Webster's body for a proper burial. The brave man was finally laid to rest in Illinois between his father, Timothy Sr., a man who dreamed of a better life for his children, and his son, Timothy Webster III, who had died in battle fighting for that same dream. Timothy Webster was a son, a brother, a husband, a father, a machinist, a policeman, a friend, a detective, a hero, and he was a spy. If you like the show and would like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. You can become a Patreon supporter. You can find us at Patreon under Spy Stories. You can tell your friends about our show. You can share our episodes. You can leave us positive reviews on iTunes. We have a Facebook group, Spy Stories Podcast. And please stay tuned at the end of the episode for the podcast that we recommend this week. The life of Timothy Webster reminds us to be brave in spite of impossible circumstances. Sometimes the good win, and sometimes they don't. The important thing is to never give up. Like Harriet the Spy says, life is hard. A good spy gets in there and fights. And until next week, keep fighting. At the heart of every crime, there's a lie. In order to do this job well, you're going to have to learn to lie. But you're going to have to remember who you're lying to and when to lie and when not to lie. But a lie is only powerful if you choose to believe it. It all came out. All the story came out. It turned out he had two wives and five fiancés. That he wasn't marrying women because he loved them. He was actively impregnating women to rip them off for money, me being one of them. So why do we fall for it every time? My, my father told me at a young age, he, just, he says, Carl, the two easiest things to sell anybody, anything that'll improve their looks and anything that'll make them money. And that's what you want to sell. Pretend Radio is a documentary podcast about people pretending to be someone else. I interview real con artists, snake oil salesmen, and former cult members anyone living a lie. Search for Pretend Radio wherever you get your podcasts.